The Gaslight Anthem's sophomore release, The 59 Sound, was released in the midst of economic turmoil in America. Financial institutions were crashing down, and while the banks were bailed out, middle- and lower-class civilians felt the full brunt of the impact. The Gaslight Anthem could only watch as the world around them drastically changed, thus they decided to put pen to paper in remnants of a simpler time for America's working class. The Gaslight Anthem shares geographic similarities to Bruce Springsteen and his E Street Band, as well as punk standouts The Bouncing Souls, and sonically, they share a similar sound to Early Against Me, but the New Jersey Quartet's sophomore release is uniquely their own. The Gaslight Anthem's The 59 Sound is a record recorded with the fondness of yesteryear, but with an urgency that lives in the present. Frontman Brian Fallon's calls of loneliness are not the rose-tinted visions of an era of classic cars and sailor tattoos that he so fondly remembers. His despair lives in the context of a contemporary landscape. His happiness lives far off in a bygone era that passed him by before he was born. It's an album of discomfort, desperation, and despair. But above all of that, The 59 Sound is an art school album. My guest today is a man that I've been very excited to have on the show, a man of good taste and a man of good morals, and he's here today to talk about a very good album. That is The 59 Sound by The Gaslight Anthem, and my guest today is Aaron Bentley. Aaron, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm not sure any of what you said is true other than that this is a good album, but otherwise, uh, I am here. I'm excited to talk about this. I Well, we'll talk about it as we as we go on, but a band that has been very special to me. So let's jump into it because, you know, you say that. Take me to uh, the first memory you have of the Gaslight Anthem. Do you remember hearing this band for the first time? Was it when this album came out, which was in August of 2008, or was it, you know, a little before, a little after? I think it would have been just a little after this came out. My A very close friend of mine who really started my road down getting into a very different style of music was the one who introduced me to this band, to this album. So I would have been in law school at the time. uh, And I was kind of in this musical desert in that suddenly I wasn't around people who had good or interesting taste in music anymore. (laughs) Okay. That sounds like law school. Yes, you can imagine the kind of people who are in law school. But like in college, I knew a lot of people who were into different kind of stuff. And you can hear about new things all the time. In high school, this friend I was talking about who introduced me to the Gaslight Anthem, he got me into first into like hardcore and metal and was uh, introducing me to that kind of stuff. So I was always hearing about new stuff. And then suddenly I was kind of not hearing about anything for a while. And it was very depressing to me. And then this band came along. Uh, my friend, his name's Steve. He told me about this album. I listened to it and I thought it was uh, one of the best things I'd ever heard at the time. Yeah. It's a band that, and I would have been not to make you feel old, but I would have been nine years old when this album <laughs> came out. Um, I don't remember hearing this album at the time, but I actually would have been introduced to the Gaslight Anthem uh, the year after, and it wasn't the 59 sound that I heard for the first time, but it was a song off of their debut record, Sink or Swim, uh, the song I'd call you Woody Joe, because that was on the Skate 2 video game soundtrack. 
I have said numerous times Skate 2 is the greatest video game ever created. I still play it on my PS3 to this day, and... You know, the the soundtrack was very immersive, a lot of different sounds, a lot of good, like, old-school hip-hop. You had some more contemporary punk bands on the soundtrack, and one of those bands was the Gaslight Anthem, and there was something about that sound in particular that I found very appealing. And 10 years old, I mean, I'm still listening to the alternative rock that's on the radio. And at this time I was probably just getting into a band like Cage the Elephant and weeding myself off of the Salivas and the Nickelbacks and whatever I had been introduced to at a young age. I was getting out of that and and trying even at that age to find a little bit more of a more mature sound. So I was familiar with the Gaslight Anthem off the bat, but it was a few years later that I heard the 59 sound, and it made a huge impression on me. But you mentioned uh, in high school and college that you were discovering these new sounds, these new bands. What were some of those bands that really jumped out at you at that time? So when I first got into heavier music, like I was in, I kind of went through a new metal phase in like eighth grade or so. Solid. And then I was really into, you know, like Limp Bizkit and Korn and and all that stuff that was popular at the time. And then my friend Steve started introducing me to bands like Hatebreed and Unearth. And I really got into the uh, Christian metalcore scene. (laughs) Tell me about the Christian metalcore scene, a scene I know absolutely nothing about. Yeah, so I was introduced to bands like Zayo, uh, Living Sacrifice. I think of some of the bands I really liked from that era, but that, I mean, those are like some of the biggest bands and it really grabbed a hold of me. Uh, I definitely was uh, much more religious than I am now, but it also just like, it had sick ass guitar riffs, dude. I mean, <laughs> I just well, love it. It was Christian metalcore. I mean, what else would you expect? Yeah. So I got really into that and I got really into like tough guy, hardcore, like uh, Throwdown. I mentioned hate breed terror yeah i remember we had a conversation about a month ago where you mentioned you were really into terror at one point and that really (laughs) shocked me just because i know you now and i was like hmm ab listening to terror i hmm, i was not expecting that but more power to him i guess yeah i was a really like angry guy at the time i'm not sure what exactly i had to be angry about but i was very angry and that was like college aaron was was a very angry guy looking for angry music to try to uh, funnel that into. So yeah, I liked a lot of that. And then of course, college, you know, if you think back then when I was like, oh, four, oh, five, emo had become like mainstream popular. So I was getting into your brand news. I know they're canceled. Canceled. A canceled band. Yeah. So brand new, uh, that sort of uh, type of stuff I was really into And then I got into, I went from there into like singer songwriter stuff. I've had a strange, a really strange uh, adventure with, with music, but yeah, I guess back before I got into Gaslight, it would have largely been hardcore metal. And I've also always been into um, hip hop. So a lot of, a lot of hip hop around that same time. That's interesting because I I know just from talking to you in the past that you definitely went through kind of that journey to get where you are now, but I associate you with more of, is it fair to say like an Americana sound that you're really into now? What is in your palette at this current moment? 
Yeah, I think Americana, you know, what people refer to as Americana is probably like the stuff I listen to the most now. Jason Isbell, I think everybody would agree as my favorite artist. Because <laughs> I, I would agree. <laughs> yeah, I talk about him a lot. So I, I like him a whole lot. I like guys like John Moreland. I like Margot Price, Amanda Shires, you know, so yeah, that type of that type of stuff I mostly listen to nowadays. But I also I've gotten really into I guess they call it uh, emo trap, like the uh, Wicca face brings eternal. Yes. Aaron Bentley, the biggest Wicca face fan I know. Yeah. So I used people who are listening to this probably won't have any familiarity with this, but I used to do a wrestling podcast that Wicca face was a fan of. And so he started DMing me and I wasn't familiar with his music. And so I started listening to it. And at first I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, I kind of like this vibe. It's something it's like cool background music. And it's gotten to the point where now I just like unironically love it. Like, I just think it's really good. And so I've gotten from that. I've gotten into like Lil Peep, gone back and gotten into that. (laughs) So So what is it about this scene that you like? Because just on the surface, you're a very clean cut man. You don't have any face tattoos. There's no dreadlocks (laughs) in your future. I don't know about your past. What is it that is drawing you to... What And I've discussed this a little bit on the show of what I really feel like is the next branch of alternative music, whether like whether guitar dorks like it or not is kind of irrelevant. Like there is something to emo rap that is offering a viable alternative to that lifestyle and that sound. Is that kind of what pulled you in there? Well, I've always loved trap beats. I've always loved that sort of hip hop, at least from like a musical perspective. But when you really like Peel it back. And a lot of this resonated with me when I was I watched the Lil Peep documentary that's on it's on Netflix now. Everybody's everything, I think is what it's called. I believe so. And they talk in that about how this is the emo of my youth. This is what it is now. It's like it's the same vibe. It's a lot of the same type of people. If they had come around at that time, that's probably what they would have been into. But they came around at a different time. Where, you know, you think about how much culture has been because of the Internet, how much culture has just been flattened. So it's like a kid from Indiana like you or a kid from Eastern Kentucky like me could hear all these different types of music and learn about all these different types of things. And so somewhere in this mishmash, it just kind of I already said flattened, but that's what it does. You know, it just kind of flattens. And then you have something that makes sense for a kid that might be into emo to also love trap beats. And so it's really just the vibe of it is what it's like. I can chill out to it. I enjoy that. But there's like there's something real to it. And that's I kind of think for most of us, well, not most of us, but people like you and me who really get into music. I feel like that authenticity is is what we're generally looking for. It doesn't necessarily always have to be about the sound, but something that just is authentic. And I feel like a lot of the major acts in this in this space. Now, of course, there's going to be people come along to try to ride it because it's becoming popular. But I just think there's a lot of authenticity to it. And when you think about Lil Peep in particular, it's like he comes from a working class background. And I think you can feel that and hear that in his music. And that always resonates with me. I completely agree with you, and I didn't used to feel that way, and I'm upset with myself for taking so long to come around on this. Now, the sound 
is never going to totally be for me. And I don't think there's going to be an artist that comes from this uh, subgenre that really connects with me on any sort of sonic level. But emotionally, I brushed this entire scene off. I was like, this is ridiculous. It's not guitar, drum, bass, singer. I don't know what this is, but I don't like it because it's something new. And as time has gone on, (laughs) I've come to really appreciate what that scene is bringing to the table, even if, again, even if it's not necessarily for me, I that's that authenticity that you talk about where I have seen people around me, just some of my peers at Contemporaries, like really connect to the sound and really connect to the people on stage. And that was when I had to re-examine because the connection that they were feeling, and, and maybe this sounds elitist and if it does, too bad, but like the connection they were feeling was... I think more aligned with like the connection I feel to punk bands, you know, a Touche Amore or a La Dispute. And it was just a deeper connection than I think you can ever really have to a Taylor Swift or an Ariana Grande or these elite level pop stars who uh, I'm not debating their artistic integrity or their artistic ability, but when you see someone in a 400-seat capacity venue compared to a 20,000-seat capacity venue, emotions are heightened in the smaller in the smaller setting, and I think that matters, and that seems to be uh, kind of where emo rap is setting up shop, at least for the time being, until somebody really blows up, and then we'll see. You also mentioned just the way culture has changed radically. I know there's a comedian, Paul Rust, who grew up in Nebraska, and he talks about it. He's like, yeah, we didn't we didn't have grunge until, like, 95. Like, just none of us knew it was a thing. And then Kurt died, and then we found out that we had missed this great thing. Um, and it seems like the Gaslight Anthem is yearning for a culture of the past with this record. Is that fair to say? I think that's a great way of putting it. It's It's something that not only are they yearning for, or, you know, Brian Fallon is largely yearning for a culture of the past, but it's like trying to just be that, not trying to call on it, but trying to be it as if the past is the present, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think that does. I, I guess I have a question for you and maybe this sounds bad, but so let's say, let's say you hear this record end of 2008, early 2009, a little bit after it came out. Are you, buying it on cd are you downloading it on itunes how are you primarily getting new music at this point i had pretty much moved to itunes at this point Uh, although this album i believe my friend steve got it early and just sent me the mp3s (laughs) solid good yeah this album did leak a few weeks before it came out uh it was put out by side one dummy records which at least in my life is one of the most important record labels that I've come across. They have put out almost all of the Jeff Rosenstock solo stuff. They put out a bunch of AJJ stuff, uh, a pop record here and there, uh, and they put this out. And uh, I've got some quotes from co-owner, co-founder Joe Sib later on. But real quick before we dive into the album, just to reiterate, take me to who Aaron Bentley was in August of 2008. You mentioned you were in law school. What's just what's happening in your life at the time? What is happening in my life? Well, I'm I'm spending, as it turns out, entirely too much time working on the uh, Barack Obama campaign for president. <laughs> <laughs> there can be no doubt about that. I'm I'm dating the woman I would eventually marry, 
although things are not like what they would become in our relationship for sure. I think that plays a lot into how I feel about this record. I was coming out. So I've mentioned that I was, you know, high school, college, pretty angry guy. I was just starting to understand a way to get past that. And to you learn, at least for me, that my anger was tied up almost entirely in insecurity and just anxiety and being worried about what everybody was thinking about me. And I could just if I lashed out at them, they didn't get to have the thoughts that they wanted to have about me. I was forcing them to react to my anger rather than whatever else they were already reacting to. So find uh, that you take like everything you do pretty seriously? Are you someone that or maybe at the time that took yourself really seriously? I absolutely took myself way too seriously at the time. No doubt about it. I find because I am much calmer than I was even two years ago. I've really mellowed out in terms of both anxiety and anger. But I find that when I get angry and maybe it's part of what pulls me to hardcore punk and to artists that are uh, very authentic and are exposing emotionally themselves in some medium. But I find that when I'm angry, it's because I want people to know that I really care about what I'm doing. And if I laugh it off, then like I'm afraid it'll come off as lethargic or that I, I'm lazy and I just don't care about whatever the end result is. And typically it's in a creative past capacity just with what I do. But I find that a lot of my anger is geared towards that idea of like, I want people to know that I care. I think that's absolutely part of it. And if you're anything like me, that thing of taking things too seriously, is sometimes it pisses you off that other people don't take it as seriously For as sure. you do. Yeah, I think especially with, with music, art generally, when it's like, no, this is really serious to me. And for you to act like it doesn't mean anything, that makes me mad. You know, <laughs> So I think for people like us, that can be a part of, of that anger. So it was at this time that I was just starting to be able to like calm down. And it's like, if somebody really loves Taylor Swift, that doesn't have to make me mad. No, I don't not have... at all. She has a few very good songs. Right. And it's like, when you sit to think about it, you realize that most people like mainstream art because that's just what the culture is oriented to it's it's not their fault in any real way you know you and me are are digging in to find other types of bands and other types of music and most people that's just not a priority for them so we don't have to be mad about it and i was starting to chill out about that for sure i was something that really resonated about this band with me and this album is i think brian fallon is obsessed with the passage of time and how quickly it's passing. And I also had that issue at this time in my life. I was very worried about death and thinking about how, how quickly I was going to be dead. And <laughs> No, I uh, completely understand. It is, <laughs> it is my one great fear. I don't love heights. I don't love speed as in like acceleration. Uh, but I really don't like death. It's uh, something that continues to plague my existence, which is the only thing that I'm fighting for really is this idea of being alive and trying to uh, live the best life I can. I'll also say, going back to your point of just popular artists real quick, it's what has illuminated that idea to me more than anything is being on dating apps where people's Spotify's are connected and 
even in a even in a big city like Chicago, everybody's top artists are the same. It's Chance the Rapper and it's Drake and it's Migos and it's Taylor Swift and it's Harry Styles and that's not a bad thing at all, but I realize like my Spotify is connected and my top bands are Touche Amore and the Silver Jews and the Smiths. And it looks insane to like people don't know who those <laughs> bands are. And when you find someone that does, like it is an immediate just conversation started because you're dealing with just these mass quantities of people that, you know, if I mention bright eyes, I'm wide awake. It's morning. They have no clue what I'm talking about. And then just in a conversational setting, if you find someone that does that, if there's an immediate connection there, and that's what I love. I've said before, uh, this podcast is not meant to be any sort of elitism. Uh, I'm not bragging about the hours I've spent alone listening to music. That's It's not a flex by any means. It's simply <laughs> I'm hoping to illuminate uh, some bands, and if people need to hear a certain sound in their life at that moment, I hope... I can bring that to them for the Gaslight Anthem. They accomplished that mission with the 59 Sound. It was released on August 19th, 2008. 12 songs, 41 minutes, and 32 seconds. Like I said previously, it was put out by Side One Dummy Records. And we kick off the album with a song called Great Expectations. AB, how do you feel about the track opener? This might be my favorite song on the record. I'll tell you right now, honest. it's my favorite song on the record. Okay, all right. I mean, just like the beginning of it, where you get the, the vinyl noise, you get that little guitar riff, and then just hitting with that first line. I just love how it's a it's a really smart trick that they did of having that really quiet kind of filtered riff to start it. And then, boom, the album just sounds so big and so full. Uh, I love I love the the themes of the song. The, the chorus is like, uh, it kind of is emblematic of everything that this band does well in that you have like the anthemic chorus. You have the stuff that's easy to remember to sing along. You got really catchy little riffs. And you have the little bits of of the past little references that, that Brian Fallon throws in. It kind of, this song kind of has it all. It's just a lovely recorded piece. I mean, I look at it like this song in particular, and, uh, and there are tracks that I, I certainly don't love as much. Maybe a song or two that I don't like on this album, but this song in particular, I just love it. I, it is everything I want. And it's crazy to hear a band like the Gaslight Anthem who, was nothing more than a punk band at this point. I mean, they were, you know, buddies with a band like Fake Problems who were hot in the scene at the time. Um, they were on, you know, Side One Dummy. It's a a legendary punk label at this point. And then you hear a song like this that 
one, the production of it. You mentioned uh, the needle drop at the beginning and kind of that filter guitar riff. There's all sorts of just added sounds, whether it be an engine revving or you hear, you know, chains crashing down at one point later on in the record. There's so much just added frills to this record that I am all about. That being said, I encounter my biggest issue with the Gaslight Anthem even in this song, in this song, I love it. The chorus especially. I mean, once the chorus hits, there is such a high potential of foot tapping through this record. I just want to tap my foot and just hum along to the entire thing because it's so catchy. But the Gaslight Anthem exists in their very own universe. They have conjured up an aesthetic that is very unique to them, and they're borrowing from people like Bruce Springsteen, and they're borrowing from more contemporary punk bands like the sort of early Against Me records, but uh, the Gaslight Anthem themselves have created their very own universe, which is almost like this 50s apocalyptic uh, fantasy land. And because they're living in this universe, some of their verbiage I find to be a little goofy at times. Um, The line in this song, and I learned about the blues from this kid and I knew, her hair was raven and her heart was like a tomb. That's great on a surface level, but am I, I'm thinking like just as someone that is very into, you know, say hardcore punk, I'm like, am I really going to sing along uh, to a song that's singing about the blues and there's this girl and he's calling her a kitten? Like, that's weird. And that's just kind of this like old-timey thing. And I battle that with the Gaslight Anthem. Do you ever run into any sort of clashes in aesthetic with this band? Yes, absolutely. I enjoy the aesthetic in a way, but I think it holds them back from becoming like an all-time great band. I think it holds this album back from being an all-time great album. And definitely holds Brian Fallon back from being an all-time great songwriter because he doesn't have... It's like, and I, I think this is part of the reason why this album hit me so hard when I first heard it. It He was 28 at the time. So it's like he's trying on costumes to try to figure out who he is. And this is something that he's tried on. But the authenticity isn't, isn't there as much as some of the stuff we talked about earlier. And something like uh, a guy like Jason Isbell, who I think is an all-time great songwriter, he has those little specifics in a song that really make you feel like the story is real. Like it's something you can touch and feel. And I don't, and Brian Fallon very rarely has that. Yeah. Uh, there's, there, yeah. There's a level of escapism in yes. these songs that I, I like it to an extent, but it's, it's exactly that thing. He's, if we're talking about the pantheon of the all time greats, this is what locks those doors and keeps the gaslight anthem out is I can turn to a band that is just in your face with realism. Even a band, like, I don't know where you stand on a band like the Front Bottoms, but they're my favorite band, and people can brush them off as as goofy and melodramatic to an extent, but they operate in a very narrative-based universe, and I believe every word that's coming out of the singer's mouth, whether it's a true story or not, he's able to convey that sense of realism. Well... I'm thinking about a band that you introduced me to, Spanish Love Songs. Yes. And you can say also that they are melodramatic at times, but you believe everything they say. And I know a lot of uh, the songs are based in realism, but you can like you can feel what uh, what their singer was going through when he when he wrote those lyrics without a doubt. And I don't know Brian does sometimes hit that, and we'll talk about 
there's a line later that I want to talk about that like really illustrates the point that I'm trying to make. But most of the time, it feels like a cool idea that he had about a cool song. And so here it is. Yeah, I think that is a very fair way of putting it. And then from there, you move into track two, the title track, The 59 Sound. explosions of sound like you mentioned in the opener it continues on that same path here where you have a little bit of a subdued instrumental opener and then once things blow up i mean they just hit you like a ton of bricks uh joe sib who like i mentioned was the co-founder of side one dummy he mentions that when he puts on this record and this song in particular He's like, you know, he's got to like stare at the record and go like, are you ready to do this? Are you ready to do this? Because I'm about to fuck you up. And then the record does. And that comes from uh, The Ringer, which I know AB has some opinions on Bill Simmons that differ from mine. Uh, We'll remain cordial here. Um, (laughs) It's okay. But The Ringer did a great oral history of the Gaslighting Anthem and this record in particular that they put out last year. Uh, And Joseph mentions that there. And this is, uh, this is, I feel like it's the one Gaslight Anthem song that if you know the band, this is the song you know. And it's it just it continues in the same vein. I don't think it's that different of an artistic statement or even sonically shifts all that much from the opener. And as a result, it's almost just as good of a song. Yeah, I think I get that this is a lukewarm take because everybody knows this song. But I think this is in the pantheon of, of great songs. It's kind of got your, your good chorus, your, your catchy chorus. The riff is really good. But it also, it doesn't have as much as I would want out of the realism, the authenticity. But you do feel the story. You absolutely feel it. And that's almost, when I say it's in the pantheon of great songs, I mean, you know, it's basically a pop song. And probably the added realism that I would want in a song would have held it back from that. And what you get instead is like a very broad song that just about anybody can enjoy. But if you dig into it, it's got enough meat that it is, uh, it really can be devastating uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, the uh, Pitchfork review, which was written by Tom Brian, uh, he mentions, uh, and I quote, as the song gets ready to end, there's this flattening bridge where Fallon repeats almost to himself over and over, young boys, young girls ain't supposed to die on a Saturday night. It's simple, it's sincere, and it kills me every time. And quote, and you're right in that sense that although it is a pop song, there's a certain heaviness to this record that uh, really follows the entire album through all 12 tracks. And I wonder especially with like this song and the opener in particular, it's not thematically all that different from what was going on in the punk scene at the time or songs that we hear from emo artists then or now. But there's 
and maybe it's just because he was 28 when he wrote this album, but there's almost like this grown-up sensibility that even uh, just, you know, to go really broad, a band like Blink-182, even though they're older now, like, there is still a permanent fixture of, like, Blink-182 are these, like, 20-year-old assholes who are singing about girls in, like, their senior year of high school into college, whereas here, Brian Fallon and the Gaslight Anthem are talking about marriage, and they're talking about these long-term relationships that are crumbling, and I just wonder if the way that art is received and critiqued and reviewed, that if that adds some sort of legitimacy to this record. I think that's a fair point, especially because you think about the people who review music, who criticize music, and they're largely going to come from, well, a lot of them are going to come from an age cohort that is going to identify with, with what Brian Fallon is talking about. And uh, a lot of them even more so are going to identify with the bands that he's referencing <laughs> in a lot of ways. And I think that helped. I mean, obviously we haven't mentioned this, but the, the literal tie between Gaslight Anthem and Bruce Springsteen, I think was huge for this band and huge for critical acceptance of this band. Yeah. Bruce Springsteen, uh, his son introduced him to this band right around the time that the 59 sound came out a little after, uh, they hung out in New Jersey one evening and then they bumped into each other at Glastonbury in 2009. And right before the Gaslight Anthem went on, Springsteen said, would you guys mind if I played a song with you? Uh, on stage, they played the 59 sound together. And for me, this would not be a seal of approval. And the band has kind of talked about this of, you know, once Bruce came into the picture, there were, it, it became very divided as the people that knew Sink or Swim and knew the 59 sound and liked the punk band, the Gaslight Anthem. And then you had an entirely new fan base coming in that liked, they liked the band that Bruce Springsteen liked. And I'm someone, I don't know where you stand on it, but I'm not a Bruce Springsteen fan. So that would not have been a selling point for me. I love Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I've always been a big Bruce fan. I think he's someone who, you know, this isn't anything groundbreaking, but a guy who never worked a, you know, hard labor job a day in his life. And yet, made a career out of writing songs about the people, working class people, and uh, in an authentic way, I think. And so I'm just not sure that, and it's funny, I feel like I'm saying a lot of negative things about this album and about this band, even though I love them and love I feel love the same way. No, you're, I, I, I think you're a big positive. I was like, man, am I sounding like I'm shitting on this record? Because I really <laughs> like it. <laughs> right. They just, they don't have that same authenticity. Like in the, which the next song we're going to talk about, I think really kind of, uh, illustrates that lack of authenticity at times. This is track three. This is Old White Lincoln. And in this song, Brian Fallon throws out lines about high top sneakers and sailor tattoos. And I just cannot get on board with that. Well, Case, how much time have you spent around? I mean, you go to punk shows, right? Yeah, the high top sneakers to an extent I don't mind. It's combined with the imagery of sailor tattoos and i i just when i think about the gaslight anthem i always 
pit them against uh, the Philadelphia-based punk band, the Metzingers, because I think, especially the early Metzingers records, there's a lot of similarities, both in terms of sound, but also uh, there's just this yearning for the past, whether it's a generation that you want to go back to or a prior relationship that you want to go back to. But the Menzingers are from Philly, and there is just a little more intensity and a little more authenticity to what they're singing about. And they're not asking me to sing a song about classic cars at the New Jersey boardwalk. The Gaslight Anthem ultimately fails for me because they are too pro-New Jersey, and that is something I have had to wrestle with. Because <laughs> it's, it's honestly, it's such a clash in aesthetics of what I'm looking for in music that when they're singing about muscle cars, I'm just like, ugh, all right. I mean, I'm as pro public transportation as you can get, but fine, you know, uh, okay. You've got a car and you've got a cute girl. I'm sure this sounded cool in 1961, but man, I'm just not looking for this right now. I might get canceled for this. I'm just going to say, I'm going to get canceled on your podcast. But uh, when I was going to punk and hardcore shows, there were these girls who wore the high top sneakers and they, they had the tattoos. Maybe they wore the little, uh, bandana in their hair, you know. I do. And like, that, I do like that. Just let the yes. record show. I'm pro overalls and I'm pro yes. bandanas in the hair. <laughs> so that's kind of like to me, and maybe that's how he was talking about. He had some, you know, '50s girl in his mind. But I was thinking about like scene girls when I when I hear this song, and so that's that's appealing to me. I didn't go nearly far enough to get canceled, but <laughs> but you you miss like okay, the line I lit a cigarette on a parking meter. The corner boys, corner boys told her how I was dying to meet her. It's like no one can relate to that. No, it's forget, throw my straight edge sensibilities out the window. <laughs> that is just that is ridiculous. That is a ridiculous thing to write down in any era, but especially you're writing this in what the winter of 2007 to 2008. Not yeah. relatable in the slightest. It's not, uh, but. He brings it, I mean, for me, he brings it together. I know a lot of people hate this line, but I love, I always dreamed of classic cars and movie screens trying to find some way to be redeemed. Like, that is the most authentic he is in this song, when he's saying, like, that is literally what I dream about, like, that time in life, even though I wasn't around for it, but there's something about that that appeals to me, and that I could be redeemed if I could only get back there. Like, that draws me in. I want more of that. I want him to explain why he connects with this so much, but he never does. It's certainly more introspective than he gets really throughout the rest of their catalog, really, is that is a really good thesis statement for what he's looking for in his music. And unless you have something to add to that, I will move on to track four, which is High Lonesome. Once again, reverting back to uh, these figures of the past, and he's looking 
at symbols that feel, I guess, slightly irrelevant in the modern world. But in this song, he's saying that he always kind of sort of wished he looked like Elvis. And even though, you know, in his head, there's all these classic cars and outlaw outlaw cowboy bands, I always kind of sort of wish I looked like someone else. And I just mocked him for, again, that symbolism in the prior song, whereas here in High Lonesome, I completely relate and just understand the gravity of what he's trying to say in this chorus, where I am someone I really enjoy, not only Elvis's music, but uh, pre-fat Elvis, like if we're talking 50s and early 60s Elvis, I really do love that aesthetic, and just I find photos of like young Elvis to be really captivating. I know that's not exactly a hot take, he's only maybe the second most famous performer of all time behind the Beatles, but I too really like Elvis, and I love this chorus. Oh yeah, it's a it's an excellent chorus. Also, I read a review last night. I was making fun of him for referencing the Counting Crows, but the Counting Crows rule, so I don't they, care. They do. No, the Counting Crows are great. I don't care what anybody thinks. Uh, but this song is where he gets a little bit closer to what I was talking about with the last song of of trying to actually grapple with what his deal is, and because the verses are very clearly about the regret about somebody kind of watching life go by and then you get to the end and, and you wonder like, how on earth did I get here? Like, how did I, how am I this person? And so I think you see him in the verses looking at other people and seeing like what he doesn't want to, what he doesn't want to be. And then in the chorus saying like, yeah, I I never wanted to be what I, what I am. I wanted to be someone else. And I absolutely have related to that at times in my life. Um, but you know, he goes, I think this is one of the better songs on the record. Yeah. I really like this. That said, he goes hard on references in this song (laughs) and it just comes down to like how that makes you feel. Do you think it's like cool or neat because it like references things that you know and that you like, um, you know, like in films, people kind of love references. A lot of times, you know, that's kind of like a cool thing. Did you catch this reference in some film? But in songs, when you're like literally taking lines from other songs, people don't always feel the same way about that, at least when you do it as much as he does. So it just kind of it's a your mileage may vary thing. But if you like Bruce, if you like Tom Petty and you like Counting Crows, it's like, oh, this is kind of fun. (laughs) So there's something about those references that relates to a theme that I was thinking of as I was listening to this record, uh, preparing for this, of I I find the way that Brian Fallon goes about tackling issues of masculinity in this album to be very interesting. And this is 2008. I feel like the term toxic masculinity had not really entered the cultural landscape to some great extent. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that's a theme that has really become much more prevalent in, say, the last five years or so. Um, But there's something that I find very interesting about these lyrics of self-doubt and bordering on self-pity and this insecurity that is wrapped up in these muscular guitars and, uh, for the most part, very masculine imagery that is associated with these songs and I weirdly think and I I just read an article on Pitchfork that was talking about the new season of High Fidelity the uh the Hulu exclusive show that they brought back based on the movie and the writer is a, a female writer and she was noting that part of the reason the show 
doesn't click on the same level as the movie is because there's something inherently male about just having references and knowing pop culture and just knowing things for whatever reason is almost comforting to a lot of men. And in a weird way, I feel that way. Now, I'm never looking to go up to somebody and mansplain why their favorite band is the way they are or do that. But there is just a comfort and knowledge and just having a sense of of purpose, even if it's knowing facts about pop culture. And I think that ties into my greater point of, of the masculinity in this record and the way it's tackled, I find at least to be very interesting to me. Yeah, I think that is interesting. I hadn't really thought about that so much, but it's just like if you if you know these things, and you know, maybe I was talking about the film thing a minute ago about references in movies, and I think that's a largely male space also. And it's just like maybe it gives you a place in the world, you know, like this is it sets out the thesis of who you are. A lot of us, I think you and I are this way, case or have been at times define ourselves by the music that we like or the or the art that we like generally. Yeah, it's something that I've had to take into account because if you would have asked me three years ago at this exact time, Case, who are your favorite performers in the world? I would have said Morrissey and I would have said Louis C.K. I have Yikes. since had to edit those answers uh, <laughs> to an extent. Uh, still, you know... I'll, pro Morrissey and his music, you know, I, I just try to ignore everything else that he does. Um, but I, I learned kind of as shit was hitting the fan that people identified me with these, with these people as well. And now like, I don't get off on the idea of being the music guy, but I know that people associate me as as that and that I have these bands that, you know, I'm wearing band t-shirts, you know, six out of the seven days of the week, people are going to associate me in a certain way. And I've had to make peace with that while also attempting to find some sort of distance between uh, not even necessarily the art and the artist, but myself and the art that is being created. Absolutely. It's like, to some people, to a lot of people, these bands, you're the only touchstone. You know, you or you know, whoever the person is, they don't, they've never heard of them before. And so when they hear them, that's that's all it means to them. Or, you know, when it's somebody like Louis C.K. that everybody knows, but it's still maybe Case is the one who, who talks about him the most, you know? And I like, was. <laughs> sure. If, if Jason Isbell got canceled tomorrow everybody that I know would think about me in some way, you know? And if I continue to be like, no, actually, Jason Isbell is good, uh, you know, I think I would suffer for that in the eyes of many people. They would look at me differently. So I think that's a fair way of thinking about it. I've certainly thought about the idea that, like, whoever I end up dating in the future, and if it doesn't work out, I... I, I am ruining a subsect of bands for them for forever because I'm going to bring music into their lives and then things are going to end and my imagery will forever taint whatever bands I introduce them to. And that is something that I struggle with. I'm slightly humored by, but I also realize that, again, it's just the way I project my arts and interest onto other people. Yeah, I think a lot about that idea generally, just that there are these... You know, we've talked on this show that from the time I was in high school or college to now, I think I'm a much different person. And there are people, especially women that I was in relationships with, who see me frozen in time. 
as someone who didn't make those changes. And so you're right. Everything they knew about me then also, everything that I was into or, or introduced them to, they probably feel some type of way about, you know? So yeah, absolutely. yeah it's an interesting, uh, interesting thought. And it's like frightening in a lot of ways. Oh, oh for sure. It will keep me up tonight. <laughs> I'm all washed out by the side of the road. Broken bones, Matilda left a note in the road Saying, baby, honey, child I love you so long, but you deserve much better than me So I'm just burning all around on the miles in the road And I'm never going back, and I'm never going home I've been gone too long, I've been less right than wrong I lost so much blood in the fall And I, and I lit a fire is track five things get a little slower here i once again sort of have to deal with the lyricism in the song maybe not uh striking up to things that i necessarily relate to as brian fallon says in the bridge of this song your sugar and spice and everything nice uh you've got monroe hips your poison lips and knives sugar spice everything nice open wounds and a young boy's pride I can't get on board with anything that glorifies Marilyn Monroe and any sort of sensibility. Uh, My thing with her is that I just, the type of people that are super into Marilyn Monroe, I'm just like, really? That's your person? And I, Hey, we've all got our battles. We've all got our things that we like. I can't do it. It takes me away from this song. It's, it's not one of my favorite songs on the record in general, but that line just bugs me for some reason. Okay. But have you watched her films? I don't think I've seen any of them. Well, you got to go watch some case. There's some some really good stuff in there. Very talented. Apex Apex Mountain for Marilyn Monroe. What is it? What's her best film? I mean, just stick with like some like it hot. You okay. know, just All check right, that yeah. out. I'll check it out. I mean, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know what kind of films you like, but uh, it's very fun. It's something that I enjoy at least. This song, it's one of those songs like. I'm like flipping through the lyrics, just trying to think about it, you know, and it's like, you know, nothing in this song lyrically stands out to me. And honestly, as we go through the songs, it's starting to come to me that really I like this album more than I like some of the songs. Oh, interesting. Just like it is the aesthetic that you can just kind of slide into. Like I would never turn on this album and, flip to track six and listen to that and then flip to something else. Like I start with great expectations and I listen to it through the end. It's just, which is mostly how I listen to music anyway, but definitely how I would listen to this. So I like the vibe of this song. I like the, I like it sonically. I like it aesthetically, but there's nothing in here when I think about flipping through the lyrics, it's like, Oh yeah, that really hits hard. You know, it's, it's on the like, it's if I'm weighing it out, like all the good stuff that goes with the aesthetic versus the bad stuff. This is on the bad side of the of the uh, scale, just as far as there's not a lot of authenticity in here or, or yeah, relevant. I, I, that's very fair. It, well, it's another song uh, more so, I think, based on just references and in familiar imagery than any than anything else. Right. It's like <sighs> this is not an original thought. And so I, I hate to even reference it but it's a good it's a good point it was in i can't remember who even wrote the review so 
I feel bad, but it was a review of handwritten actually. And this has always stuck with me. Two things from that review. One was if do you remember the song too much blood off of handwritten vaguely. So he's got a line. Basically the idea of the song is he had, you know, his wife or his girlfriend, whatever the woman that he loves. If he's too honest in his songs, what secrets does he keep for her is the idea of the song. And so one of the lines is what's left for you, uh, my lover to take what's left for only you. I'm fucking up the lines, but it's something like that. I'll take your word for it. And the, the reviewer says, he quotes that line. He says, so this is the kind of, the kind of asshole we're dealing with, here. <laughs> 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 which is fair. Right. But, uh, the, the other point uh, that that reviewer makes in the in the handwritten review is that the oh I'm sorry there's another line on the on the album where he says I already live with too many ghosts and the reviewer finishes the review with the first step to solving your problem is admitting you have one mm. and which is a pretty <laughs> at the time I hated that review I was like this motherfucker how could he be so mean to my favorite band. But like looking back on it, it's like, you know, he's got a point. And this song is just kind of ghosts. That's, yeah. that's the point I was trying to make with that long diatribe. No, it worked out. You got <laughs> to the end of it, and I agree with your point. He, There is a sort of an asshole sensibility to Brian Fallon. I think, luckily, in track six, Miles Davis in the Cool, he steers that around a little bit. Miles Davis, I've been swayed by the cool. There's just something about the summertime There's just something about the moon So I lay a kiss on the stone Toss it upside your window This song feels maybe a little bit more inviting in terms of the characters involved, whereas, you know, in the opening song he's talking about how uh, he knows he's going to get left behind at some point. There's a lot of talk about death and loss in this album. And yet in this song, he's trying to rectify a situation. He's looking for some sort of connection, maybe even some sort of forgiveness. And I like that message certainly more than I like the song Miles Davis in the cool. Oh, this is a great song, Case. Come on. I think it's fine. Oh, the hook is so good. This is the first song on this album from which I have a tattoo on my body. You have Gaslight Anthem tattoos? I have two of them. AB, <laughs> we are 50 minutes into the show. How are you just now mentioning this? I figured I'd save it for the, when the songs came up, you okay. know. Okay. And what is your Miles Davis and the Cool tattoo? Man, this really tells you how much I was feeling the aesthetic <laughs> of this band at the time. But I have, so the, the very first car I owned was a, a 1964 Chevy Impala. Okay. And uh, I loved it, but I was a very anxious kid. And I decided before I ever drove it, I bought it. I got it before I uh, had my license. Before I ever drove it, I decided it was just too big and it, it scared me to drive it. And so I sold it and bought something smaller to drive. Always regretted it. <laughs> okay, wait, hold on. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I know. Weird you, story. You bought a car before you had your license. Yep. Had it completely... Um, like worked on to restore it to like the the original uh, interior and other stuff. And then you never drove it, but you got it tattooed. Yes, but that's why, right? It's like that. 
that regret of something like that anxiety that would drive me to do that, that regret of, of something that is in your past that you can never get back, you know, like, can I find another blue 64 Impala? Sure. But I'll never find that one. And I'll never have driven it as a 16 year old, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I have a tattoo of that car with, uh, around it, my, how the years in our youth pass on. I am speechless. <laughs> I, I love that for you. I'm glad <laughs> that that is what you decide to put on your body. I, God, I, for, I love anxious teenager stories cause I relate to most of them, but, but this, this one stumped me. This, this is, is this really, is deep, deep AB lore. That is fantastic. I can't believe I didn't know that. Not tonight. is the patient ferris wheel i am all about this one this is a phenomenal song in my opinion uh certainly something a little i a little more cinematic than maybe the other songs on the album uh, i'm a big fan of what this brings to the table yeah it's got that nighttime uh summer um the fair with the obviously the ferris wheel imagery really fits right in but you feel all that right like being there, the reminders of like the smells and the senses of, of being in that kind of world. I think it makes a lot of sense when you say cinematic because it immediately brings all those uh, pictures right to mind. Yeah, I, the, it's funny you mentioned the smell because he's talking about standing in the New Jersey rain and I just, I almost feel like this hot nighttime summer rain that like there's a like just a hint of humidity too, and it's like a very like physical feeling that kind of can come over my body when I'm listening to this. I think it's one of the better songs on the album. Uh, again, just I for that cinematic imagery. I don't really want to reiterate my point there, uh, but I really like what this song uh, is about. Also, love the uh, Dickie Barrett uh, showing up here. You just have to love that. Yeah, I it's uh it's a nice change of pace because now. Again, you know, if we're judging this on the do I have a tattoo of it scale or not, all of these songs fall flat, but I wasn't super into Film Noir or Miles Davis and the Cool. Uh, this picks it back up in a nice way, as does the following track, which is Casanova Baby. Do you hear that whistle well? I think the end is coming. Well, I'm a whole lot worse for wear, but I'm determined to slip this skin and I know you dying. saw you were or somebody on your twitter earlier today was giving you flack for this song i love this song no so they were saying i i made a post that i had been listening to this album a lot and how good it was uh and someone said i wouldn't give anybody a hard time 
if any song in this album was their favorite, not even Casanova Baby. And I thought that was so strange. It was like, <laughs> how is this even anywhere near the bottom of the list on on this uh, this album? I, I really like this song. Yeah, I do too. Now, I uh, most of my guests, or I guess all of my guests on this show up to this point have been people that are either currently in college or have just recently graduated. So we're dealing with people in their 20s and I, you know, I don't know your age. I'm assuming you're either late 20s, early 30s. You certainly look 24 and healthy as an ox. Um, <laughs> I'm old. Oh, you, you don't. Hey, I, I, you're working me then because I have no idea how old you are. Um, I'm 33. Okay, that's fine. You're young 30s. Um, does a song like this, this sort of intense uh, narrative of maybe a summer romance or there's certainly there's just like this idea of like this fling in the song. Does that age well uh, to somebody like you in your position who you're a little bit older, you're married. Do you still find enjoyment in these songs or is it more geared towards maybe younger, hopeless romantics? I think it just grows with you. It means different things to you at different times in your life, like any good music, right? Like, yes, at the time when I first heard this, I would have been thinking about some of those things that were clearer in, in the mind. But now I still listen to it and it just takes me back, you know, it just makes me think of of my past. And it's like the one song on the album that's not nostalgic in any way, and yet it inspires nostalgia. <laughs> so, <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's it's impossible. Almost any person who listens to this can relate to it in some way, you know, just like being an anxious person, but wanting to impress this person that you like, you know, I mean, what more can you want? Yeah, I, I completely agree. It's a, it's a song that I enjoy quite a bit, but I just, you know, I, I, I don't know how things in art in particular are going to age with me. And it's something that I think about a lot. I think just given my interest of like, oh, I, I, I don't want to look back in 20 years and think like, oh, that was ridiculous. But I know, you know, I will change, or at least hopefully, because I believe in the Muhammad Ali quote of, you know, if you're the same person you were 30 years ago, you've wasted 30 years. But I do worry because I am so attached to the art that I like that it will date me or that it will age poorly and rip away at some nostalgia that I would say people that digest art normally might not experience. I honestly think the nostalgia saves that for you. Like, I listened recently to Saves the Day, Stay What You Are. Uh, I, just a brilliant record. Okay, I have no idea whether it's good. None. <laughs> All I know is that when it came out, I loved it. And every song makes me think about very specific times in my life. No clue whether it's good. I, okay, so let's say something that I know you don't think is is a good album. I went back recently and listened to Limp Biscuit Significant Other. No, oh, AB, you are talking to the wrong person. I am pro Limp Biscuit and oh, pro Significant wow. Other. Damn, what? I'm trying to think of an album. I, could, I did try to go back and listen to Insane Clown Posse recently, okay, and that, see, there you that go. did not work. <laughs> <laughs> the nostalgia did not save that one for me. I'm sure, like, if you want to listen to a corn album and see if that has some nostalgia, then maybe we'll disagree there. But Limp uh, Biscuit, I have always weirdly defended. I even list, okay, I've got to get you with this one. I listened recently to Kid Rock, Devil Without a Cause. AB, you're, again, you're barking up the <laughs> wrong tree because this is all the music that, like, this is what my dad listened to. It was like a weird mix of, like, Devil Without a Cause and then Jay-Z's The Blueprint, and it would just be, like, back and forth. And, like, I was listening to Limp Biscuit 
at a very young age and was very into it. Like, I can't explain what it is, but Limp Bizkit and Kid Rock and even, like, the band Stained, like, I don't ever want to be in a position where I have to defend Stained, but if you gave, if you went up to Aaron Lewis, and I hope that nobody is ever in this position because I don't want to ever talk to Aaron Lewis, but if you went up to him and you're like, Aaron, what are the 12 best Stained songs? I need a Stained Greatest Hits album. If you go up to Aaron Lewis and he gives you 12 six of those songs are going to be pretty good. And I don't know what it is. You know, I feel like we're, whether we like it or not, some sort of musical elitist. Kid Rock and Limp Bizkit, good in my book. Go ahead and make your point, though. I just, my point is, the only thing I'm saying is that sometimes the memories of of your life when you like that album will erase any ability for them to age poorly. <laughs> so I don't think you should worry about that too much. Uh, just because I think we are similar in a lot of ways. So I think as long as you continue to mellow out as you have and as I did, you will be able to go back and not be embarrassed uh, or think that, oh, this actually has aged poorly. And instead, just like remember the, the good times. It's kind of the way I feel about tattoos when people say like, oh, don't you think you'll regret that tattoo later? And I'm like, you know, there's some tattoos that I have. Uh, not my Gaslight Anthem tattoos for the record. <laughs> but there's some tattoos that I have that I'm like, ah, I wouldn't get that today. But it reminds me very clearly of, of where I was and what was important to me at the time. Yeah, that is a, a very good point. Uh, I Again, I'm so glad we got to discuss a little bit of Limp Bizkit on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> as we move along on the record, we go to track nine, which is Even Cowgirls Get the Blues. This song is a future Instagram caption waiting to happen. I love the title of this song so much more than I actually love the song. And it's the apex for me of just not vibing with the fantasy scenario that Brian Fallon has created. Because even if I, you know, consider myself to be um, a little high strung or the, the art that I'm into was always geared towards more alternative or rebellious avenues, I don't really consider myself to be that. And so uh, in the chorus, you know, he's talking about how he still loves Tom Petty songs and driving old men crazy, and he lists off, you know, girls named Sandy and Mary and Little Eden, and it's just like this, like, almost, you know, grease era, you know, he's just naming these things that have 50s connotations to it, but I'm not ever going to be the guy that, like, burns rubber out of uh, my girlfriend's father's driveway and knocks over a mailbox with a baseball bat, and so this song doesn't do a ton for me. I'm. This might be headcanon. I just want to start by saying that, <laughs> but I want to give this song a little credit because there's a possibility that it's tongue-in-cheek. Okay. He talks about all these characters and he's and and they've grown up and moved on and started lives, but he hasn't. 
right? That's the, the whole idea of the song. And so it makes you wonder if it's like him acknowledging that he's still stuck in the past while other people are moving on. I respect that hypothesis. I like <laughs> I like the way you're going through it, but the prior eight songs lead me to believe <laughs> that he's really committed to this idea and that it's not yeah. as metaphorical as we think. That may be true. Here's what I will say in defense of the song, if you if you reject my headcanon, is the last part of this song is excellent. The there's a party tonight. I say it's all right. Tell your papa you'll be home when the good feeling dies. Something about I'll be home when the good feeling dies, that is like evocative for me. I just really like that. I I will share a car story because you shared yours about your first car. And yes, I'm still thinking about that. I had a weird thing in like high school where, and I lived out in the country. And so no matter what I was doing, it was still like a drive home and I had to drive on these like dark, empty streets to get back home. And I would have a weird thing of, I would be going home and I would be having, I had such a good night. And this is, you know, my senior year of high school where I'm starting to understand uh, just the good habits from the bad habits in terms of mental health. And I'm starting to make friends and connect with people that I really enjoy spending time with. And I'd have this great night and I'd be on the way home and I'd have my music playing loud. I'd be singing along to the music and then I would have this intense feeling rush over me and I'd have to like pull over for a second and breathe because I'm like, things are going too well. If I continue to drive and have fun right now, I am going to get into a car crash and blow up. And so I completely understand that good feeling of driving home or, or driving home when that good feeling dies. For me, it was always halfway in between home and wherever I was, intense panic would set over me and I would have to reset because in my mind... Still to this day, I can really only have so much fun or else I think it's going to backfire on me. <laughs> that is incredibly funny and also uh, terribly sad. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my life. <laughs> I'm really concerned about you, Case, at this point. No, I, I understand where you're coming from. Absolutely. It's like, well, it's like it's like the first song in this album, right? Everybody leaves, not expect the same from you. Yes. Just, or as much from you. It's like. Look, eventually this isn't going to go well. So, no, I, I, I feel you. I just, uh, I want better for you, Case. That's all. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Um, I, it, you know what? Things, all things considered, they're going pretty well. Uh, track ten, "Meet Me by the River's Edge." Uh, I, I will say in the same vein as myself right now, uh, pretty good. See, I've been here for 28 years, padding sweat beneath these wheels, tattooed lines beneath our skin, no surrender, my Bobby Jean. strong thoughts on this song but i enjoy it whenever i hear it yeah i love this song just like the sound of it the the chorus is excellent but it is the most the i'm trying to couch this in the, the right way that i that i want to put it it's the most naked attempt at a bruce springsteen song okay explain that to me as someone that really doesn't know springsteen's catalog all that well 
Well, it's basically talking about working class people, which is a, a Bruce Springsteen thing, yeah, right? It is his thing. We've got a dad who worked in a factory, which is like a, a Springsteen thing. Mm-hmm. We've got we're going down to the to the river's edge to wash these sins away, which is literally taken from a Springsteen song, Racing in the Streets. So it's just like, well, even I drive the 101 on a California night. Like Springsteen would have never been in California, but you know, just a lot of the driving, a lot of the working, a lot of um, Springsteen is all about that we have done all these bad things and we have to like that that humans are intrinsically bad and we have to pay penance. I feel like that's an underlying theme in a lot of Springsteen. And you see that here. And unfortunately for Brian Fallon, it comes across as a tribute to Springsteen rather than something that he actually inhabits in the way that Springsteen did. We know Springsteen never worked in a factory. We know that. We know his dad did. But we know he never did. We know he never, the guy couldn't drive until late in life. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So we know he didn't drive those cars, but he inhabits those cars. And uh, Fallon doesn't have the same ability, but he still, but he knows how to write a fucking song. He knows how to write riffs. He knows how to write choruses. And he nails all that, in my opinion, in this song. You can tell Gail if she calls. That I'm famous now for all of these rock and roll songs And even if that's a lie She should have given me a try When we were kids on the field of the first day of school I would have been her fool And I would have sang out your name in those old high school halls you tell that to Gail if she comes. Track 11 is Here's Looking at You, Kid, a reference to the 1942 film Casablanca, in which uh, another movie I have never seen. Here's the thing, A.B., my thing with movies, what? Uh, most of them are too long. I just, uh. I can't sit through them. My favorite movie, my fa- I'll give you my top three, and you can gauge if you have you know if you can comprehend this list of my top three favorite movies of all time uh maybe that'll give you a hint as to what i like number one boys in the hood number two 40 year old version number three monsters inc that is the level <laughs> you're working with so okay like, well boys in the hood is a classic so boys i'll give you that tremendous like tv i love the sopranos uh i'm getting ready to watch the wire all the way through i like really high art tv movies for the most part Give me a Judd Apatow comedy and I'll call it a day. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, you know, there's a lot more out there for you to find <laughs> if you if you go looking. My, Are you ready for my top three oh, movies please. of all time? Please. Uh, the Passion of Joan of Arc, 1928. Okay. Uh, it's a silent film about uh, Joan of Arc, obviously. I just, I don't no, continue and then we'll circle back to it. Two, 1991's Point Break. Okay. And... Three, Malik's Badlands. Wow. Okay, so earlier in the show, we talked (laughs) about just the way men glom on to films and the way they discuss those. Yes. Having your favorite movie be a silent film from 1928. 
is a really bold thing to admit. And I'm proud of you for sharing it in this safe space. It's uh, pretentious as shit. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but I just, it's, I like it. I can't get away from that. No, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, as for this song, things get a little quieter. They slow down a little bit. It's their greatest shift sonically in this entire album. Uh, they certainly go in a different direction here than they do in really any of their other songs. It's an enjoyable song on its own. I have talked about this on the show numerous times, of, and it was something that I really wasn't aware of until I started doing the show, of how often bands will have a 12-song album, or you know any number, but it's you know 12 is a pretty popular number in terms of uh, constructing an album, and that last song... They will attempt to slow things down and be quieter and in some sort of attempt to make an artistic statement, but it really comes out as more of a whimper. And I'm always so disappointed, like the example that I always use is Weezer's Pinkerton. The first however many songs on that album are perfect, and then you get to the last song of the record and it's like, ugh, that's what they did there? And I'm so glad that they didn't end the album with this and that they picked it back up for one more song because had this ended the album, if it was the last thing, the the taste that was left in my mouth, I think it would hurt the album overall, even though it's an enjoyable song. Damn it, Case, that was going to be my big take on this on this song. Great minds think alike. Uh, I hate when bands, when heavy bands, or, you know, whatever, uh, end albums with a slow song or a, a soft song. Yeah, I just think that's always bad. So here's my big take. On this song, which, by the way, the second song from which I have a tattoo, which I'll get to. But here's my big take. Fallon, it, it ties in with his inability to to find the little specifics that make a song feel authentic. And I think it has to do with his just inability or, or unwillingness to be vulnerable and if you you look at this song and it, go back through every song. Once I thought about this and I thought about it while I was re-listening to this album for this podcast. Every time he talks about a relationship with a woman, it's always that the woman did something wrong to him. <laughs> always. Which is not uncommon in songs written by men, right? No, it tracks. But the great songwriters are introspective and, and look at what they did wrong and how they failed. But Fallon always looks at how women failed him. It's always uh, some way to blame them. And this is a, a great example. I mean, this song has, you know, three different uh, illustrations of, of women wronging uh, Brian Fallon. And I think it resonated with me at the time because I probably I probably was a blamer, too, at the time, especially of women when it came to, like, why things were bad for me or hard for me. And so I think. Uh, this really resonated with me at the time because of that, but it stops him from becoming a great songwriter. That's my big take. Now, he does have one great example, one great specific in this song. In the last verse when he says, and the waiter served my coffee with a consolation sigh. You can't listen to that and not picture it. I have it in and, my notes. It, it was a line yes. that jumped out at me when I yes. really started paying attention to the lyrics of this. It's like, Brian, that's the gold, buddy. <laughs> you got to find more of those to write these songs. Anyway, those, that, those are my takes on uh, Here's Looking at You, Kid. Yeah, and then from there, we move into the final song on the record, The Back Sea. Yeah. 
the intensity it, it sounds more like the you know the first 10 songs on the album and and lesser so than the 11th i think there's a line in this uh or a few lines in this that kind of sum up the entire thesis of the gaslight anthem in which brian fallon says in the back seats of burned out cars in the disenchantment lane the ideal angles angels twist and turn and ask forgiveness for future mistakes and that seems like the Gaslight Anthem summed up. There's just a, a sort of metaphorical gravity to those lines where it's like, oh yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what they're going for here. Uh, they're weirdly on this path to being burnouts. It's like they're crashing and they just can't stop all of the commotion that's going on, but they realize uh, they've made mistakes and they're, they're looking for some sort of forgiveness, whether it's hat in hand outright or whether... It's this weird, you know, like you mentioned in the last song, like this weird Brian Fallon, like, uh, uh, let's just say we were both wrong. Like, I'm not wrong, and you were wrong, but I'll say we were both wrong, so you'll forgive me. Like, there's this, like, almost unwillingness to accept defeat, but also realizing you were wrong at the same time. Case, this is my least favorite song on this album. Really? By far. Okay. All right. Go ahead. And the real reason... I try to think about this a lot. The real reason it's my least favorite album, song on the album was they always played it last at shows. Mm. And I was like, this is not a good ender. <laughs> and that drove me insane. <laughs> I would skip merch at the beginning of the show because I knew that as soon as this song started, I would go to the merch table and buy my T-shirt or whatever. And, and how many times have you seen the Gaslight Anthem? Because I know you went to the re, uh, the reunion show in, what was that, 2018, 2019 in Chicago, and I really regret not making an effort to go to that show. Uh, it had to be 2018 because it was the 10-year anniversary right. of this album. Uh, how many times have I seen Gaslight Anthem? I, I'm pulling up uh, something on my phone here that will tell me. One, two, three, four, five... Only six times, so not that many times. That's that's impressive. Yeah, first time in 2010 was the first time I saw them. But then, you know, they stopped playing basically after, I think, 2015. So yeah. I didn't. But I, I saw them a handful of times, and they always played this last. And so as I was listening to this for this podcast, I tried to think like, okay, is there a reason other than that why I don't like this? And I think it's just, I don't think it's fully formed as a song. Like the... Something great about a lot of the other songs in this album, almost every other song on this album, is I think they had a really good sense for the uh, the lead guitar parts or kind of little other guitar parts that kind of floated in the background. And the album is is mixed, in my opinion, very well. And those parts sit in there nicely. But when you really zoom in on them, it makes the songs so much bigger. It adds a, a fullness that kind of makes everything happen. And in this song, you don't have that. It's a lot of like that open uh, guitar riff that's in most of this song, especially in uh, the chorus. And just those those loud drums that are almost loud for the sake of being loud, even though I love the drummer of this band. Um, so I just don't think it's, I don't think it's fully formed. And even the ideas in the lyrics, it's more like an idea of a song than it is a song for me. I I completely see where you're coming from. It's certainly, I don't think it's one of the stronger songs on the album. I would put it maybe in the latter half and maybe it's just the idea that I like, here's looking at you kid, 
because it's not the last song on the album, maybe just that noise for the sake of being noise, I tend to gravitate towards that a little bit more when we're talking about the closing song on a record. So maybe that's why I like it, but I certainly see your point there. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I like, like, it's a clever chorus, you know, so I enjoy the the idea. I enjoy even the execution of it. But I just think generally when you're a live band, that last song has to be so strong. And I'm talking last song as in last song of their encore. This is what they would play. Or later on in their run, they stopped doing encores and they would just be like, hey, we're not doing an encore, but here are the last songs we're going to play. And this was just, this is not a strong enough song to send, to send the fans home, to send them after the song to the merch table, to buy things, to make sure they buy a ticket to the next show, to make sure they buy the next album. I just never understood why they closed with this song. I think that's a fair point. AB, that takes us to the end of the record. Now to review it, uh, Upon its release, a 4 out of 5 from the Alternative Press, a 9 out of 10 from the NME, and an 8.6 out of 10 from the Almighty Pitchfork. Aaron Bentley, I turn to you. How do you rate this record? I I feel like now this is going to be surprising because I feel like I've been down on the album throughout. Uh, but again, I think as a whole, it's a lot better than as the sum of its parts this would probably make a top 10 list for me personally. Uh, so I'm going to put it as an eight out of 10. I am in the same boat. I'm sure if I went back and looked at all of the releases in 2008, if this wasn't the best album of that year, it would certainly be in my top three. I can't imagine something this good uh, falling outside of a top 10. If we're talking about album of the year list, it seems like a, it just with my taste, it would have been top 25 of the decade, which now that I'm saying that, I really need to go back and, and do that just for my own entertainment. But I'm in the same boat of an 8 out of 10. I just think aesthetically, it's not entirely what I, I've lined up to, and I can't entirely uh, submerse myself in that, or I guess immerse myself in that universe. But uh, the songs, for the most part, are undeniably great. Yeah, strong agree. They're good, so great songwriters. And... I talked about the lyrics earlier, my problems with those, but just as songs, these are all really good musically. So they're just, you can't deny them. I'm going to put you on the spot here for the final question of uh -oh. the podcast. I asked this to everybody, but I, I didn't give you a heads up before we started that I was going to ask you this. Aaron Bentley, who needs to hear this album and why? And you can be as literal or as metaphorical as you want with this. Wow, that's really something to think about. You know, I think I think Brian Fallon needs to hear this album. <laughs> do a little self-reflection? Yeah, I do. And I think, but it's not just, I because I want to say that people like you and me need to hear this album because, but we need to look at it from a, from a critical standpoint of hearing these lyrics and realizing, A, that we don't have to have figured out who we are at 28, and B, that we've got to take some of the blame for ourselves in life. It's not always your fault, but sometimes it is. And it's, it's worth finding out, even when it's someone else's fault, what you could have done differently. So I think it's good for people like us to listen to once we've gotten past a point where we can do that. But I, I hope Brian Fallon looks back at, at some of these songs and thinks, wow, there's a lot that I have learned in the last 
10 years. I mean, you change. I mean, I've not made it to 38 yet, but you change a lot from 28 to 38, right? So it's maybe I'm being unfair. I talked earlier about how there are people in my past who see me as frozen in time. Maybe I see Brian Fallon as frozen in time. Oh, we turned the tables on ourselves. I, I just did. I did. So maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe So it does come back. Maybe I need to listen to this album again and think about the fact that uh, even songwriters aren't frozen in time, even though a lot of times it feels like it because art feels so permanent, right? Even songwriters aren't frozen in time and even cowgirls get the blues. <laughs> and that takes us to the end of the 59 sound. Before we go, Aaron, what do you have to plug? Well, I don't know how many wrestling fans listen to this podcast. Uh, but... I know a few that do, and I imagine because you're on it, a few more will. So feel free to plug whatever ventures you've got going. Well, they probably already know about it then. But if you're curious, you I do a podcast about All Elite Wrestling. Every Usually it's uh, Thursday night, Friday morning. We come out talking about that week's episode of AEW Dynamite. It's called Everything Elite. If you search that in the podcast app of your choice, you'll find it. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash everything elite, where we talk more widely about wrestling. For example, we've been doing a series breaking down old war game style matches. So if that means anything to you, <laughs> then uh, you might be curious to check it out. I wish I had some. I've been in a lot of bands, uh, but I don't have anything current that I would want to uh, plug for people. But uh, I've been working on some stuff. So maybe soon I'll, I'll have something out there. So if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Aaron like the car. Very fun, Aaron. Thank you so much. This was such a blast. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore case low, C-A-S-E-L-O-W-E. And if you don't want me, you just want updates on the podcast, you can follow the Instagram at Art School Albums. Until next time, I thank you for listening to the Art School Albums podcast. This has been the 59 Sound by the Gaslight Anthem.